Right, we're going to go back to Luke 11 and the Lord's Prayer. Um, we've been spending a number of weeks just uh, walking our way through, through that. Um, one of the reasons, one of the great reasons, of course, is that when you think about Jesus himself, he, in his becoming man and his becoming flesh in leaving the father's side as it were and taking on human flesh he limited himself to um, the kinds of powers that any man might have so that when you see him living his life he's living it in in the way that any person ought to be able to live if you were to take sin out of the equation He's not living, as it were, by the power of his being the Son of God. And you say, well, what about all the miracles and so on? I think that when you read the Gospels carefully and you see the number of times that it says that he did this and that and the other by the power of the Spirit, it's evident that Christ was, was walking in the same power that he's then made available to his people, the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I mention that is because when we come to this specific um, issue of prayer, um, obviously... It's, it's so surprising in one sense to think that Jesus himself, who had been with the Father since the beginning of the, of, before the foundation of the world, now has to communicate with his Father in the exact same way that we do. He doesn't have a special hotline. It's not like the Batman phone or um, the kind of tunnel under the Parliament buildings where he can have a special line of communication with the Father. He has to talk to the Father the same way that any other person does, which is through prayer. And he has to do it by the same power that anyone else does, which is by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is something amazing because it means that you and I can model his exact pattern in prayer. Obviously, that's why he gave us this prayer. And it would no doubt, no doubt contains many of the elements that he himself prayed, apart from asking for forgiveness, which is today's um, subject. So what we're seeing is Christ demonstrating to us how to pray and the way he prayed. And I think probably it's fair to say then that you can have a, the same kind, the same quality of relationship with God as Jesus himself did in following his footsteps in this. He's made that available to us by saving us, by his own blood. Now, this means that if we follow in Christ's steps and learn how to pray as he does, that can have enormous repercussions and impact for us as a church, which is, of course, the primary reason why I feel so passionate that we need to keep coming back to this and um, why... It's got to be a foundation stone right at the base of what we're going to be doing. And also, it's going to have an enormous impact on you personally if you take this seriously, if you take on board the things that we're talking about and thinking about and work it into your life. Just this week, I came across um, a little um, six statements that were written by a man called Brownlow North, who was a bishop a couple of hundred years ago, and he said, here are six rules for young Christians. And his first and second were that you should never neglect daily private prayer and never neglect the study of the Bible. And he said this, that I believe all backsliding begins with the neglect of these two rules. And I know that speaking personally, I think that's true. I think that whenever I find that my heart is growing cold, I was just talking to the guys before the meeting that... Christmas is difficult, mainly because you, you indulge so much 
in, in the food and the materialism and all that stuff. And often I find, and it may just be me, but often I find that my walk with, with, with God is neglected. And that's certainly something that I've experienced even just over this past week or two. And I've got to just totally identify with what Brownlow North said, that this is the beginning of all backsliding, the cooling of your heart's affections, the tendency to be drawn towards sin um, in any direction is always at root a failure to engage with the God who made you and loved you and to know him and delight in him. So that's why one of the reasons why we have to keep coming back to this. Now, when it comes to the specific uh, phrase that we're going to be looking at today, I think it's, we're going to discover just how vital it is. Let's read from uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach others to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is an extraordinarily powerful um, element in the prayer, to ask God for forgiveness for a couple of reasons. One is because it's seeking to deal with the universal human problem of guilt, of the sense of guiltiness before a living God. And secondly, because it's the one part of the prayer which is answered and, or can potentially be answered instantaneously. You don't have to wait to see what God's going to do in response to your prayer. It is in that moment that you can experience the power of God in answer to your prayer. So let's look carefully then at what Jesus is talking about here. I think there are three, three ways that we can look at this, three ways we can understand how to pray this. The first is this, that we need to seek the forgiveness of God as, as our judge. Now, that's obviously the assumption that lies behind what Jesus is saying here. When he's encouraging us to approach God as, and, and ask for forgiveness, he is assuming that every one of us has an awareness of our, of our guiltiness before him. No one would pray this sincerely unless they had an awareness of that. But that is immediately something which I think runs counter to um, certainly what most people in modern Britain want to consider acceptable and um, what most people want to believe about religion. But listen, the Bible shows us that there are two, there are two kinds of guilt which we need to be aware of when we, we're coming to God in prayer. The first is what you could think of as a, a kind of the verdict, the objective verdict of God about our lives, that we are, without Christ, we are, we are guilty. That is something that's true of us, regardless of how we feel, and regardless of whether we're even aware of it. Um, so if, if you were somebody stood in the dock, it wouldn't matter whether you felt guilty or what you believed about your guilt. It's what the judge says that matters that, that makes the final difference between whether you are or aren't. And that's one aspect to this whole subject of guilt. Now, I've met many people who would immediately want to push back on that because, generally speaking, this whole notion that God could be in any way angry against sin or indeed a judge in himself 
is felt to be distasteful. But I think that you'll see it's totally common sense when you think it through. Just ask yourself, is there anything in the world about which you disapprove? Anything at all in the world which you think that is wrong and I disapprove of that? I, I, there's never been a person I've met without exception who I think would say that that is true. And therefore, you just take it one step further. Well, if we disapprove of things, how much more would God? And then another step further, if there are things that God disapproves of in the world, it's not that hard to believe that there are things in me that he doesn't find um, acceptable or in you. So that's one thing is the verdict of guilt. But the other is, is something I think we should all identify with, which is the sensation, the feeling, the emotion, the um, the awareness of guilt, which, of course, it, in common language, is just called your conscience. This is um, a massively important subject in the Bible. The awareness of the gnawing sensation in the pit of your stomach that there are things that you are guilty about. Now, all too often, again, I think that the way people deal with this kind of a sensation is certainly not to come to God in the way the Bible says. I think people tend to do one of a few things. We tend to perhaps bury that sense of guilt, which means to find ways to, to deal with it, to push it to the side and, and remove it from our life. Often this is one of the root causes behind all kinds of mental problems and disorders, but even at a more superficial day-to-day level. This is often one of the reasons people find other escapist pleasures, whether it's just vegging in front of the TV for hours so you don't have to think, or all the way through to taking all kinds of recreational drugs and, all, and finding thrills in life. So often it has to do with people wanting to bury the sensation of guilt and an awareness of, of being wrong before a holy God. For others, it can be more of a kind of denial thing. I remember some years ago talking with a friend, um, a girl who lived in the room next door to C in Halls called Rebecca, and she and I were talking about the Christian faith. And I got onto the whole thing of sin, how as a Christian, one of the very, the first things you become aware of is that you are guilty before God, and therefore you need to find his forgiveness. And she immediately reacted to that and said, this is what I hate, all this self-flagellating talk. And what she meant, in a sense, was that the problem with Christians is that we, in her view, was that we, we beat ourselves up about the things that we see as wrong in our lives, that we are, we're too morose or too morbid about it. Now, of course, that's only half the picture when you know the full gospel. But for so many people in the world today, it is just a case of sheer denial, just just rationalize your way out of the wrong, the sense of wrong in your heart, the sense of wrong in your life, the things, the specific concrete things you've done. Deny it. Find some way to ignore it. And for others, it can be more of a kind of absolution thing. If they don't bury it or they don't deny it, very often people want to absolve their guilt, which is to say, find a way of redeeming yourself. Find a way of balancing the karma in your life. Find a way of um, making yourself feel better about yourself. That can be through kind of rituals, religious rituals, or other kinds of good works. But these are the, the natural recourse of the human heart to, to, to go to one of these three things or a combination of all of the above. But in the Bible, <clears throat> what we find is that 
conscience, this sense of guiltiness before God, is not only a gift of God, but it is even shown to be the very voice of God in our hearts. In Romans 2, Paul talked about this. He was talking specifically about people, he calls Gentiles, anyone who didn't have the law and therefore couldn't, couldn't rightly be judged against the law. And what he says about them is that he says that Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires. In other words, we all have a moral compass. It may be adjusted slightly differently, but all of us have a sense of a polarity of right and wrong in our hearts. And what he goes on to say is that he says they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, the work of God's law, God's voice, God's, God's morality built into the very fabric of his creation is written on hearts. And the follow-on from that then is that when your conscience kicks into gear, is what he says, that their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He says that people find themselves rationalizing one day or in a pit the next day and they found themselves in all kinds of different emotions about wrong, but the one thing they can't escape is the knowledge that you are in the wrong, that there is guilt in your heart. And the Bible says this is not just something good, this is the gift, this is even the voice of God to us. That God himself is speaking into us when we feel our conscience stirred with the wrong in our hearts. With that said, I would say that that sensation is always a precursor to first coming to Christ, first crossing the line of faith from unbelief to belief. I know for some people that's something that you feel in a, in a very mild, tepid way uh, in comparison with others, but it's still there. But also, when you, when you read the biographies of great men of God through history, you find that some of them went through seasons of immense anguish because of their sense of profound guilt before a holy God. And that, that's not a wrong thing. That can be part of God's preparation in bringing you to the cross in bringing you to Christ. So I think about somebody like C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher, saw many thousands come to know Christ in his ministry. When he was a young boy, he began reading theology books. He was a little bit of a child prodigy and a genius, but he was reading massive Puritan works of theology, but he didn't get the gospel. So by the time he was 15, he talks about it in his autobiography of having this immense turmoil in his heart, being like a, a ship in the storms at sea, he says where he, he didn't know what would happen to him if he were to die. He didn't know how to deal with this sense of guilt. And then one day the gospel clicks into place in his mind and heart, and he's saved. Whitfield and Wesley went to university, met each other there, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. And at the time, I don't think they would have said, any of them would have said that they were Christians. But they began the Methodists there, which meant that they lived a methodical life seeking to, to work towards holiness. But they will tell you in their own writings and when you read the biographies that at that stage when they were students, they had no knowledge of, of grace and of the gospel and they had immense anguish in their heart about the guilt that they felt before a holy God. And at some point later in their lives, different, slightly different stages, but they all came to know Christ 
having gone through that and became the immensely powerful preachers in revival that they became. We could go on and talk about Luther, the most famous example, and others. But my point is that always this guilt is a, should be seen as a gift of God and as a possibility for how God can be speaking to you, how God can be dealing with you to bring you through to crossing the line of faith, bringing you through to knowing God. Now, I want you now to notice how simple this prayer is. In view of all that, in view of what we said about guilt as a, a precondition for praying this, it's amazing how simple Jesus puts this when he just says it in, in the English five words, and forgive us our sins. I know this has been, the simplicity of this has been in some ways abused. Um, the pattern often in evangelism and people preaching the message about Jesus to large groups of people is just to say, listen, just pray these, this prayer and, and you'll be fine. And I think that for some people that may be true. For others, they just end up praying a formula without fully understanding it. So I don't want to, you know, obviously the simplicity of it can be a problem. But having said that, we must never move away from the fact that what Jesus is offering us here in the potential just to say these simple words is the difference between death and life and that it isn't a, something you have to work up or work toward. All you have to have is a grain of faith as you pray this line. And it's enough. In that moment, as you bring your guilt to Christ, He does all the work. Which is why, of course, He went to the cross to do it for us, in our place, on our behalf. The simplicity of it is utterly striking. And that, of course, runs against all the wisdom of men that think that in wanting to get rid of our guilt before God, we have to absolve ourselves. And the Bible says, no, Jesus has absolved your sin for you. He has dealt with it. He took it upon himself. Which is why this is such a simple act. And it's why it's such an opportunity for everyone who, who can't say with absolute certainty that they know God. This is an opportunity when you pray this line to have your life changed in a moment, instantly. That's the first thing then, that we need to seek the forgiveness of God as judge. The second is this, that we need to seek the forgiveness of God as father. Martin Luther, when he, when he really kicked off the Reformation, it was really the match that, that lighted the bonfire, was his act when he wrote 95 theses, 95 ideas on a piece of paper, and he took a nail and he hammered it to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. His first one of those... What do you want, Sethi? <laughs> His first one of those theses was, was this. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Let me read that again. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Now for me, that immediately raises a question. The gospel 
message is that when Christ saves you, he saves you from past, present, and future sins. That you can never be any more justified before God than at the first moment that you come to Christ. It's it. It's done. You're in the family. Which then raises the question, why do we need then to keep on repenting in life? Or to put it another way, what are we at risk of losing if we do not, as Christians, walk in this kind of way of repentance that Martin Luther's talking about? What does it... What difference does it make to your day-to-day life? If you're already saved, why do you need to keep on doing this? I think that's particularly interesting when you think that it was Martin Luther who wrote this as his first of his theses, because he was the guy who helped us to understand what the Bible teaches about justification, the fact that you cannot add anything to your salvation that is all of faith and nothing of you, and that you are saved the moment you have faith in Christ. And yet he's the one who also said, okay, but... The rest of your life also then needs to be one of repentance. It makes sense when you understand his context, which is this. That when he looked around the religious scene, and the thing that he'd been a part of as well, was that repentance um, was, was, was like a, was a machine, a, a kind of sausage machine, that you put into it confession and absolution and penance. You have to say a certain amount of, Hail Marys and this, that and the other. And you get out the other end your, your pardon, your forgiveness from God or f- via a priest or whatever. And obviously when people see get, being saved and forgiven in a formulaic way like that, the natural tendency of the human heart is just to go through the motions, isn't it? Just to do the bare minimum. I can live the way I want, providing I then go to the priest, confess it, do what I need to do, say the right number of Hail Marys and so on. And what he says, in contrast, he said, when you look at the Bible and you see the lives of people who are truly saved, who believed on Christ and whose hearts have been transformed, what takes place is the most deep-rooted transformation inside them. So that you begin to pray like John the Baptist. Do you remember how he, what he said when people came to him and asked him about the preaching of Jesus? And he said, he must increase, I must decrease. He saw his life of faith as one of lifting Jesus higher and pushing himself lower day after day. And that's, in a nutshell, what the Christian life is about. That upon coming to faith in Christ, he becomes your obsession and then he must increase, I must decrease. That's what it means to repent, is continually to turn away from my own will, my own desires, my own aims in life, and so to crush them that I decrease and Christ increases. I find it um, helpful then to understand what we're talking about here, the difference between repenting when you come to faith and, and, and asking forgiveness then, and the difference when, in daily asking for forgiveness is like this, that, that on the one hand, you're, you're, you're asking forgiveness from God as the judge. And as the judge, there is nothing you can ever do to please him. He sees through our hearts. He sees the motives of our hearts. He sees the mixture in our hearts. And he says, there is nothing you could do to ever become acceptable to me, but Jesus has done it all. And that is final. To be saved is to be covered in Christ's righteousness and have nothing of your own. But listen, there is also a forgiveness that we seek from God as Father, which means to say, 
that when we come into the family and we are accepted, there's no way out. There's no way that he'd ever cast you aside, reject you, or unadopt you from his family. There is a fellowship with God that is ours to enjoy, a relationship with him that is ours to enjoy, that ought to deepen and become richer with the weeks and the years of knowing Christ. And it is that that's at stake when we have sin in our hearts. So although we can't please him as the judge, Christ has had to do that for us. When we're in the family, the New Testament constantly encourages us to seek to please God as our Father. Which you and I know, if you have a loving dad, that's a heck of a lot easier than ever seeking to please a judge. He is on your side. Packer, J.I. Packer put it like this. He said that the regenerate persons, which is just another way of saying a Christian, they know that sin, when cherished, becomes an obstacle to their enjoyment of fellowship with God. A Christian knows that sin, when cherished, becomes an obstacle to your enjoyment of fellowship with God. Which is to say, that even if you are belonging to Christ, you may well be saved, but there is nothing you can do to enjoy fellowship with God whilst you at the same time want to cherish sin in your heart. The two are like oil and water. They cannot mix. You can't enjoy God and enjoy your sin at the same time. You turn from one to embrace the other. That's at the heart of the word, what the word repentance means in both Hebrew and Greek. In the Hebrew, it has to do with just turning around. And in the Greek, it has to do with changing your mind. You have to let go of one thing to enjoy the other. And you cannot possibly hold both intention at the same time together. That's what he's saying. And so what it means then for us is this. What Christ is pushing us towards when he says that we need to be praying in this way, forgive us our sins, forgive us our sins, God, is that if we don't do it, we're at risk of losing the pleasure of God in our heart, on our lives, the favor of God in day-to-day living, the smile of his countenance upon us. We're at risk of losing the sense of his presence even. I know some people get nervous about that kind of language, but that is the way the Bible talks. David pleads with God in Psalm 51 when he's had committed adultery and all the mess that he created. He, he begs God, don't take your spirit from me. In other words, don't, don't be absent from my experience, from my day-to-day life. I want to know you and I want to know your presence in my life. That's what's at stake when a Christian wants to go back to sin, wants to cherish sin, is the sweetness of enjoyment of God's presence. What does that feel like? Well, let me just find a few verses to kind of describe what that might feel like. In Psalm 68, there is a striking line that essentially tells us that if you want to walk in sin, you will be miserable. Verse 6, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. He's saying that when you walk in rebellion against the Father, 
you, it's like you go into a spiritual desert. And all you have is thirst and an awareness of need and no way of quenching it, no matter what well or what oasis or what mirage you run after, the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Over in, in Isaiah 48, the last line is just this, this one zinger that just hits you. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. When a Christian cherishes sin in their heart, they cannot know peace. The peace of God, the wholeness of God that comes into the life of someone who knows him is a gift of God, a gift of his grace that can only be enjoyed when, when sin is eradicated, when you're pushing it aside, when you're living in repentance from it. But when you cherish sin in your heart, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. You can't have sin and peace at the same time. It'll tear you up, even if it tastes sweet. And probably the most damning of all, what it feels like to walk in sin and, and cherish it in your heart, is what it says in Revelation 3, when Jesus is speaking to the various churches. And he, says, he addresses one church, it's called Laodicea. He says, I know your works, you're neither hot, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, I would prefer it if you were a complete pagan who'd never known me. At least then you might have a chance of hearing the gospel. Or a red-hot, zealous, passionate Christian. But what are you when you're sat there in the middle with all this sin in your life and yet you claim to be a Christian, claim to know Christ? He says, you're neither cold nor hot. He says, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It tells us that when we cherish sin in our hearts, our relationship with God can only be colder and colder. And this is why the New Testament talks to Christians, those who are called saints, those who are called justified. The New Testament never once calls us sinners. It always calls us holy people. But it talks to us and tells us to walk in repentance. It's why... In, those same, in that same passage, a little bit further down, when he's talking to these Laodiceans, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. In other words, get serious about what is going wrong in your life and deal with it with red-hot passion to eradicate it from your life and to, and to embrace me again. Be zealous and repent. Another passage I could turn to is in uh, 2 Corinthians 7. Where Paul's talking about all the, the mess that was going on in that church and the sin that they were walking in. And he talks about what real repentance is there in verses 9 to 11. He says this, I rejoice not because you were grieved about your sin, but because you were grieved into repenting. He says it's not enough just to feel sorry. He says, your sorriness about your sin, your sense of guilt, your sense of anguish about that, has to lead you through to the completion of being repentant before God. He says, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
Now this, this verse answers the question why so many Christians find themselves in a pit, find themselves in a spiral, find themselves having said, look, I've, I've come to God again and again and I've said sorry, but again and again I find myself walking away from God. And Paul says, look, this is, here's the difference. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. Worldly grief is a kind of grief that's concerned only with the consequences of sin, only with the sense of feeling rubbish. It's really concerned with yourself. Godly grief, the grief that God puts in you when he begins to chasten you and change you, is a grief that so mourns the offense that you've caused against a holy God that then finally and once for all you want to deal with the sin and get it out of your life. You hate it as much as God hates it. You don't just hate the consequences. I want to remind you, this is Paul talking to Christians. And in the Lord's Prayer and in the writings of the New Testament, what we're seeing is that this is the pattern, that a Christian is a person who walks in daily repentance. And I want to add this, that this ought to be something that deepens as the years go on. For this reason, that the more you know God, the more mature you are in your faith, the more you will have a a, a deeper and more accurate and more clear picture of his holiness, of his majesty and of who he is, and the more you will despise sin. So that when you see sin in your own life, it will become more distasteful to you over the years. Now this one's contrary so often to the way Christians usually think, which is that the moment you come to to faith in Christ, you do so much of your repentance and your transforming, and, and your life has changed rapidly, and then... A lot of Christians enter into a kind of, a kind of cruising mode. It's almost like they've retired from, from the effort. But I believe that a Christian ought to be a person who, in wanting to become Christ-like, is walking in deeper and deeper repentance the longer they've walked with Christ. Seeking to pull out the sins of their heart and the more they find the more they want to uproot like weeds in the garden of your heart. And the more weeds you pull, the more the roots are entangled and you're pulling harder and harder. So that by the time you reach 60 or 70, God willing, and you're an old, old Christian, you're holier then than you were 10 years before that. And then you were 10 years before that. And whereas so often Christians, I think, see their greatest moments as when they first came to Christ. That's when the testimony is about. Really, your testimony should be about the last week of your life. About what God is doing in you right now as you walk in daily repentance. And how the graces of God are deepening and growing. So that when you are a year older, you should be more generous than you were last year. You should be more loving than you were last year. You should be more enjoying the peace and the joy of God than you were last year because you should never enter into this kind of cruising plateau where you're no longer fighting the sin in your own heart but rather strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the New Testament says. And that's not something you check out from. That's something that ought to intensify as your Christian walk moves on. I want to move on to the last point and just say this. That yes, while we need to seek the forgiveness of God as judge and as father, 
Jesus adds this line. He says, we ourselves, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And somehow these two things are connected. So the third aspect of this prayer is this, that we need to walk in constant forgiveness toward others. So often in the New Testament when Jesus talks this way, he adds a kind of, um, a kind of qualification where he says, if you don't forgive, then God won't forgive you. It's there at the end of, um, of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. <clears throat> so in Matthew 6, when Jesus, uh, same, same, essentially the same thing, the Lord's Prayer, he says at the end of it, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. And I find that at first glance, those kinds of verses seem troubling, because it seems to me that it, it, the, most, um, the, the first reading you get from that is that Christ is saying, here's a condition for God forgiving you. That first you have to be the one who forgives others, and then God will forgive you. But when you know the whole teaching of Christ and of the New Testament, you know that can't be possibly what he means when he teaches this way. And I think we get some insight when we begin to discover, when we begin to contrast the heart of the Christian with the heart of the person who is walking in bitterness and unforgiveness in this way. When you become a Christian, you go through these these sensations, these emotions, these things become true of you. Firstly, we've been saying that you experience deep and profound guilt for your sin. Not just at the beginning of your life, but whenever you find yourself in sin. Then you experience, in coming to God and repenting, you experience profound gratitude for the grace of God that is poured on your life. You didn't deserve it, and he gave it to you anyway. And then, what ought to happen is that we then walk deeper in humility, because the more you see your sin, the, le- the more sickened you are with your own flesh, the more you find it repulsive, the more you realize that you're nothing before God, but only by his gift, only by his grace, only by his mercy. Guilt, then gratitude, then humility. And then you look at the heart of the person who is walking in unforgiveness, and you realize that they are holding the exact opposite things in their heart. Then instead of guilt for their own sin, they are walking in self-righteousness, judging another person's sin against them. Instead of gratitude for how God has forgiven you, there's a withholding of grace towards others. And instead of humility, there is pride. There's pride which wants to judge another person and hold their debt against them instead of releasing them. And Jesus says, it's impossible. You can't be a Christian who's forgiven and walk in unforgiveness. It only shows that you were never saved in the first place when bitterness has taken such a deep root in your life and you refuse to forgive another person. What I'm trying to say is this, that forgiveness, though hard, is the natural path of the Christian heart because the Christian who's seen the grace of the gospel has to forgive. And unforgiveness is the natural course or pathway 
of the person who hasn't experienced the grace of God. Because we are by nature self-righteous and judgmental people who want to consider ourselves better than others. But Jesus tells us, when you look at his teaching as a whole, that to forgive others, you experience amazing freedom. That all the hurt of what was done against you is dissolved. And I know that sometimes people do awful things against other people. And you may have experienced some of the worst of what people can do to other people. When you walk in forgiveness, you find that whereas you were the one in prison, you're let out. And I find it amazing that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer, he undoubtedly anticipated that they would memorize it and that they would pray it regularly, if not on a daily basis. That was the pattern of Jewish prayer. So in giving them a model, he was giving them something they could use day by day. Now isn't it interesting that Jesus anticipates that we will be so wounded in life that we must continually bring to God the debts that we hold against other people, that he's included in this prayer. That it is one of the core essentials of what your prayer life should be, that you forgive other people. And so if that's something we need to do, then here's four pieces of advice that we need to bear in mind. Firstly, do it actively. Which is to say that in your daily coming to God in prayer, ask God and ask yourself, are there any debts that you're holding against other people? Don't just assume that you're walking in forgiveness, but search your heart. Do it secondly vocally, which I, by which I mean, I don't think it's enough sometimes just to say to yourself, oh, I've forgiven them. I think sometimes you have to say it, it to God, even out loud, I forgive them and name them and even name the thing that they did against you. Thirdly, do it deliberately, by which I mean, That often when you think about and ruminate on the things that people have done against you, you won't want to or feel like forgiving people. But I think that forgiveness is something that you choose to do. And that in making the choice, and even just saying the words, it gets easier. It becomes more meaningful. It becomes more real. And I'd say finally, do it repeatedly. Because even... When you've been badly hurt by someone, and especially when you've been hurt by someone, the same person, again and again, in the same ways, it becomes more difficult to truly forgive them from the heart. But that's what Jesus tells us to do when he says you should forgive your brother 70 times, 7 times. So when I say do it repeatedly, I mean this. That in a vulnerable moment, even when you think you've forgiven someone, sometimes thoughts and anger will resurface as you ruminate on the things that have happened to you. And don't be surprised if you have to keep bringing it back to God again and again and again until you know that you have utterly eradicated the bitterness and the frustration and the anger from your heart. That's how Christ is towards us when he keeps interceding for us before the Father 
even when we do the same things over and over again. That's the gospel. That our brother, Jesus, is there interceding for us and that his throne is a throne of mercy and a throne of grace and that we keep coming to him in our time of need. And we find that that same forgiveness is available to us so make it available to others. Danny's going to lead us in communion in just a couple of moments, but just to close off, I just want to ask you these three questions in light of what Jesus is teaching us to pray here. The first is this. Can you say with absolute certainty that you know the forgiveness of God in the sense that you have come to Christ and that you are His? Because if not, now is the time to deal with that. Secondly, are you, as a believer, walking in sin? Are you cherishing sin in your heart? And if so, I'm certain that you will experience or have experienced what we've been talking about, that it will affect your enjoyment of fellowship with God. So deal with it here, right now. And third, are you aware, even as I've been speaking of any bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart, anything that you need to deal with. One of the, almost the conditions of coming to the table, as it were, to take communion, is that we don't come in an unworthy manner. And I think probably the most unworthy way you can come to the table where God's grace is available to us as we remember Christ's sacrifice is to come holding debts against other people. And so we're going to have a pause and just even just a quiet now to deal with God in this way.